800 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah, by the Spirit of God, is, is given a vision of uh, what will happen in the future. And uh, we continue looking at that vision in Isaiah 56, 1 to 8. This is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and who hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and will give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. One of the things, uh, one of the TV programs that interests me uh, over the last year or so was that on Amazon Prime, this is not product placement, All or Nothing is a series of uh, sporting documentaries. It's a fly on the wall. Um, there's a load of ones that follow American football teams. There's uh, one that follows Manchester City. Um, that's very strange. And the, there's one that's really interesting to me, which is following the New Zealand All Blacks. The reason I put that up there is simply to say this. You should watch it. It's fascinating. But also to say, in the month of January, we wanted to pause the life of the church, so to speak, because in God's kindness, we've grown some. And people who were with us at the beginning, um, they're the ones with grey hair and ones who look weary. Um, but everyone who's fresh face and got life in their boots, you're the ones that have joined uh, more recently. And we want to explain not just these three words, but we want to give you a fly on the wall uh, understanding of our values. It's not so much vision as this guy is looking in his telescope, this young boy. It's not so much vision. It's more values. It's, it's helping you to see why we do what you do or what we do, we do as a church. And the reason for that is to say this. If you see us doing anything that doesn't measure up to our values, in a very polite way, you could say, hey, why are you doing that? That doesn't measure up to the priority of the gospel that we looked at last week. Or you may have a stirring passion in your heart that says, I think we have an opportunity in our locality to do this because of the gospels, the values that we share. And we could have a conversation whether that's something we could do or not. So that's what we're doing. If you're new amongst us, if you're here just for today, this is the second of four values that we're looking at. And it's community because of the gospel. The gospel is the fountainhead of joy. It's the source from God. It's God's initiative into the lost world. It's a rescue mission centered on the person of Jesus that's changed everything. 
In response to God's grace, we worship and serve and live and share the gospel. We're generous because of God's generosity. We, we live in a community partly because of the community that exists in the triunity of God, in the, in the Godhead. And that's expressed in the local church. And that's expounded, that's displayed in Isaiah 56, verses 1 to 8. Three words, importance, pattern and power. Importance, pattern and power of community. As we say in our house, let's get into it. The importance of community. It's one of our values that underpins and undergirds what we do. Look at the first sentence of Isaiah 56, please, with me. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand. Isaiah 54, 55 have, uh, if they were a volume switch, that we turned up to the max to say salvation is all of God. God's rescue is paramount. It's nothing to do with us. It's all to do with him. That's Isaiah 54, 55. But when we come to Isaiah 56, it sounds a bit like Santa Claus. In other words, Santa Claus, that famous song that we've tried to ignore, but it's kind of been imbibed in our spirits. You better watch out. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. It sounds as if God, not Santa Claus, is saying, this is what you need to do. Verse 1, you need to maintain justice. That's on the tick list. You need to do what is right. That's the second thing on the tick list. And if you don't do that, you won't get rescued. If we think of it like that, that it's something we do, we've very much misheard what Isaiah 56 verse 1 says, because it says very clearly this important sentence, maintain justice, do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand. That's not God being a big baddie from heaven, a cosmic father who's out to get us. That's not the God of the Bible in any shape or form. What God is describing is an overflow of his grace. He's saying this to a rescued people, and he's saying, my salvation is close at hand. In light of my rescue mission, this is how you should live. We live in a response to God's grace. But to prove my point, I want to go back to the very beginning. God created the whole world. I'll be quick. God created the whole world with three jobs to do, with three responses to his loving kindness. We were to center all our life on him. We were to enjoy him and function and relate to him as a source of joy and hope and love and life. Because of who God is, we were to have an overflow of a loving community. We are to establish a family in the Garden of Eden that would grow into a nation. But that all went wrong. We were to care as an overflow of our love for God and one another. We are to care for the created world. That's all in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Three jobs that we had. But, but every week we can see that we centered our life not on God, but, but on ourselves. You don't have to go very far. You can look in your own family. We could look sadly at the royal family this week. We could look into nations around the world that are warring. We can look at ethnic division, division of colour of skin, division of nationality, division of socioeconomic status. This, this desire for humanity quickly dissolved because of sin and our rebellion. We don't want to centre our life on God. That first thing that we were created to do, we would rather the whole world was centred on us. It's a bit like a picture of a solar system. At the centre of the solar system is, is the sun. All the planets orbit around the sun. But the trouble is with us. We don't want a solar system where we all orbit around God's goodness and his provision and his love. We want the whole world to orbit around our lives. And rather than having a solar system, you have a solar collision. 
All of us want to be at the centre. We are self-centred. We are selfie-centred as people. We, we want us to be in the centre of the picture. We design gadgets so our phone can go on the end of the gadget so we can get ourselves in every single picture. We are completely self-saturated and self-honouring and self-obsessed. And God says, what well, another word for that is sin. I'm at the centre of the universe. I'm to be the centre of your life. You are to orbit around me, not because he needs us, but as a reflection of his goodness and for our great good. But with our selfie obsessedness, with our self-centeredness, God in his kindness is not content just to leave us. He has every right just to wash his hands, wring his hands of us and says, fine, you don't want me, I'm going to start afresh. But God doesn't do that. God intervenes time and again in human history and he begins with a man called Abraham. He says, Abraham, you don't need any more to be centred on your own life. I'm going to take you from being a moon worshipper and I want you to centre your life on me. And he revealed his glory to him in Genesis chapter 12. And he says, from you I'm going to make a new family. It's going to be a great family. I'm not content to leave you in your sin and I'm going to need to do something remarkable to intervene in the mess. A 90-year-old wife called Sarah, your wife is going to have a child. 90 years old, that's horrible, that's old, that's wrinkly. You think that if you're a teenager or a child. You think that if you're a 45-year-old, nearly. But God intervened in history because he wasn't happy to leave us in our own sin. That was Abraham. Then he got to Moses and says, Moses, I'm not going to make a new family out of you. I'm going to make a new nation out of you. By this time, God's people have grown there in Egypt. And God intervenes in a remarkably, even a greater way than giving a 90-year-old lady a child miraculously because she was barren. It was a supernatural birth. And yet God in his grace intervened again in a far more remarkable way and rescued his people, demonstrating the strength of his arm, demonstrating his goodness in Egypt. Far greater act of rescue, redemption is the Bible word. Now we get to Isaiah chapter 40. And beginning in Isaiah chapter 40, God is not talking about a family to Abraham. He's not talking about a nation to Moses. He's talking about a servant king who would come and make everything wrong right. It's a greater liberation. Now he's talking, he's talking about Jesus from a family to a society to a person. He's talking about this king who would come and die for the sins of the world. It's, it's the gospel that produces a community, that produces a mission. Hence the three names and the banners. But that's not the end of the story. Isaiah, in Isaiah 65, goes even further and says, Jesus is, looking, Jesus is looking beyond. He's looking into the future. Beyond Jesus and the new humanity that he creates, there's going to be a whole new creation. It's going to get even better. It's going to get even greater. You're a city on a hill, says Jesus to his followers. But in Isaiah 65, we say, because we hear it said, God is saying, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The sound of weeping and crying will be no more. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat with the ox. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Not a family, not a, a nation society, not just a, a new human. It's a, it's a whole new community centered on a whole new heavens and earth. It's a new city with foundations that are jeweled, all centered on the person of Jesus for the glory of God. Every time God gets involved because of our selfie-centeredness and our self-centeredness, that ruins community. It's a greater and greater degree, a greater and greater act of revelation of his kindness. And that's all behind verse 1 that says this. Maintain justice and righteousness. When you see it in that context, this is not a you must do this or I'm out to get you. God never says that. 
You're a saved people. And because you're a saved people, I want you to live in community. And community is founded on those two words in verse 1. Justice and righteousness. Here's a big blueprint for a community. You cannot have a God-centered, grace-saturated community unless you see justice and righteousness that come from the values that God gives to us. It's a people saved by grace, and it's a people, it's a people who long, God longs to model the community that he wants to see on earth. It, it's, a bit like, it's a bit like one of those show homes. You know when you see those show homes that are surrounded by mud? The, the excavators are there, but there's a promise of what will be, and it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. It's more money than you can afford, but if you borrow just a bit more, you might be able to get it. It's a, it's a picture like that. One house that is really nice and carefully made, and then all the others that aren't so carefully made, perhaps, as it's been in the newspapers recently. That's the church. The church is to be an outpost of heaven on earth, where there is justice and righteousness, relationships in community, broken people, making mistakes, but where God's grace is seen as broken-hearted people come together and live, rub shoulders up the, rub each other up the wrong way, use truth as a brickbat sometimes, but we long to live as Christ would have us live, by his grace. And when that happens, you see a show home of the future, a show home of heaven, where brothers and sisters dwell in unity. Look at verse 3. This passage is about people. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. This is a people, not just an ethnic identity of Israelites. This is God's kingdom people. God's people from all different places around his world. It's a wonderful picture of the future. And it's all because of God's grace. Now here's a quick application before we move on. It's very easy as Western people to think, and this is one of the reasons we thought about thankfulness, when I become a Christian, God wipes my slate clean. I'm saved from my sin. I'm a new person. And all of that is true. But that, friends, as a Westerner, is a means to an end. God saves us as individuals, but we don't remain individuals. We're saved into a community of believers called the church, with all our warts, with all our feebles and faults. And it's very, very important that we increasingly see that we are bound to one another. A church is not somewhere you just come to and listen and you leave. It's not uh, somewhere where it's just a crowd that gathers like a football game or a concert. You've got no interaction with the person next to you. You might sing the same songs, but that's it at Arsenal or Chelsea or Crystal Palace or whoever you support. The church is not a crowd, it's a community. It's a body. It's a family. We're doing okay, but there's loads more we could be doing better. Are you wedded to this church or to another local church? doesn't matter if you're here for six months or six years or even more. It's so important that you put down roots into a local church community so that you can grow as we rub each other up the wrong way, as we have opportunities to cry together, to laugh together. That's how you grow. You do not grow in isolation. John Stott, famous Christian minister, once said, the New Testament knows nothing of the individual Christian. Like one of those barbecue briquettes that you're trying desperately to light the, uh, the barbecue in the summer, 
not in the winter, that one week of summer that we have sometimes around Wimbledon, and, uh, and one of the briquettes rolls off and it gets cold. The only way for that briquette to be made warm again is if you bring it back to the fire. Friends, the importance of community cannot be understated. But what's the pattern? What's it look like? There are three things in uh, 56, three examples. It's uh, work and money, it's family and sex, it's race and power. Three areas that uh, God's community should look different in. Let's look at each one quickly, I assure you. Look at verse 1 again. Maintain justice, do what is right, righteousness. Verse 2 says, blessed is the man who does this. Blessed is the one who does justice and righteousness, who keeps the Sabbath without destroying it or desecrating it. Blessed are the people who, who live in justice. And then there's a, another way of saying the same thing. Blessed are those who keep the Sabbath. When we think of Sabbath, we think of time off. We think of me time. We think of uh, match the day in the morning. We think of church, maybe or not. We think of poles and lace in the afternoon, if you're like me, or taking the kids to do a club, that kind of stuff, pub lunch. In the Bible, it's a very, very rich concept. It's a rich concept that explains our attitude to work and money within the new community. If you observe, if you keep a Sabbath, not the Sabbath, if you keep a Sabbath day, whether you're a shift worker, so you've got to work on Sunday, so it's another day, or whether you're not, whether you're 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, and so you can keep a, a Sunday, that limits your opportunity straight away to make money. It limits your uh, means to, to keep your employees happy, to keep your employment uh, to the max. It says in Deuteronomy 5, no one in your house may do any kind of work on the Sunday, on the Sabbath, God liberated you from slavery. Therefore, you have to observe the Sabbath day. You have to observe what God did by rescuing you from Egypt. That's what's behind the idea of a Sabbath. It's not rest. It's resting in God's provision for you. It's resting in his salvation. It's resting in his redemption. And so when you do that, when an Israelite were to do that, that means they're not working. They're not farming. That means if you had slaves... Your slaves would have a day off. Your servants would have a day off. Don't think of slavery in a modern definition of slavery when you hear that word. It's a deliberate, God-centered uh, means of limiting your resources because you trust God enough so that he will provide for you in the days that he has set out for work. If you, friends, in the 21st century do not have a means of Sabbath, someone will be exploiting you. If you work seven days a week, 24 hours a day, that means you are being exploited. Either it's of your own choice and your work is exploiting you. It shows that you're putting too much importance on work. Or if your employer says you've got to work seven days a week, 24 hours a day, that means your employer is exploiting you. And that needs to be reviewed. And God says there is a wholeness about my community. It's righteousness and justice. And where that is seen is in the area of work and money. There must be limits to your work. You must trust God so that when you work hard enough, that will be enough. You must trust God so that if you need to leave a manipulative or exploitative employer, God will provide for you. Very hard to work through. Lots more to say, but we need to move on. Look at the second one. I'm so glad my kids are in for this. This is about sex and family. Look at verse 4. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath. To them I will give my temple and a name better than sons and daughters. Let not the eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. What a great topic to speak on, castration on a Sunday morning. Let's think about this carefully. Castration was forbidden in Israel. Why? 
It's forbidden in Israel because God gave sex and sexuality is a good gift for his people. Sex is a good gift for human flourishing, to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. Full stop. Because God is a good giving God. It's not a worldly invention. But the nations around Israel took God's good gift and ruined it. They wanted to castrate people for a whole host of reasons. The main one, actually, was for personal career advancement. We thought about the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 last week. If he wanted to work in the king's palace, in the queen's palace, one of the things as a man, man would be, you'd have to be castrated so you wouldn't be a threat to anybody in the king's household. So you'd be made to choose between family or career without getting too graphic for obvious reasons. And God says, no, no, no. Even if people have castrated themselves or been castrated and yet they've bound themselves to my kingdom people, they have a place at the table. <coughs> Look at verse 5. I will give you a name better than sons and daughters if you're a eunuch. If you're an outsider, if you've made this decision, if this has happened to you because of work or employment, and so family is off the table, family, that, that wonderful gift that God gave, that wonderful uh, or horrible idol that there is in every society when family gets too big in our minds and hearts. God says, I will give you significance apart from family. God says, I will give you significance. I will give you a better name than those who have sons and daughters. You can still be part of my community, he says to the outsiders. Thirdly, race and power. Verse 3, let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. We've said salvation has a history. We went really quick from Adam and Eve to Abraham to Moses. We went to Jesus. We went into the future. Abraham's family was only a family. Great promise made to him in Genesis 12, 15, 17. But as God's family grew, as the, as the people grew, it grew beyond Israel. God's people is not just an ethnic Jewish person. It's outsiders. It's Gentiles from every tongue, tribe and nation. Isaiah is looking forward. And the best example I can think of Isaiah uh, 54 to 56 is actually is in the book of Acts. I'm reading the book of Acts with a man at the minute. It's very exciting to see, once again, what happens in Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, you meet three people, three very different people. That's the point. You meet Lydia, this wonderfully successful businesswoman. She's God-fearing, but she doesn't know God personally. Paul brings the gospel to her, and she's wonderfully converted. She becomes a Christian. Wonderful a uh, successful businesswoman who's converted. Then the second character is you meet this awful uh, situation of a demon-possessed little girl who's been exploited by a slave mastery. It's modern term, modern exploitation, but in an old, older context. She's remarkably liberated and rescued from her oppression. And then you get down to earth with this hard-nosed, blue-collar uh, jailer, hard as nails, kind of Bruce Springsteen on his uh, Walkman, that kind of guy. White van man of the modern day. And God rescues him wonderfully. Three completely different people from different uh, social, economic backgrounds, genders. It's this wonderful picture of God's community of grace. Outsiders being brought in because of the gospel. Now just to underscore this, let's apply this. We live in a very, very divided society at the moment. It's divided politically, socially, ethnically. Increasing amount has been written about racism in modern day UK. It's something we need to understand and respond to as a church as well. Lots to be said about this, but one thing we must get better at 
as we minister one to another is listening. It's far easier to talk, isn't it, than to listen. We must listen to say, I differ from you in a whole host of ways. Help me understand where you're coming from. Help me understand what you think. Tell me what it was like growing up in that country. Help me to grasp this. We must get better at listening and understanding. We're Western people, and therefore we prize individuality. We, we want to keep our options open. We have a fear of missing out. We don't want to be accountable. And then God comes in with a sledgehammer and says, you're rescued, you're freed from your sins. Jesus took them up and took them upon himself, and now you're part of a new community. Therefore, some options are off the table. You're wedded to a people. You've got to love them. You've got to be committed to them. And there's a tension there because simultaneously, we long for community, but sin has ruined it. Sin has ruined the possibility of it. We're so afraid of being left alone by being by ourselves. You kind of die in solitary confinement. That's why it's so... uh, It's off the table in the UK. Solitary confinement is not allowed anymore, I believe. And so there's this tension of we want community, but sin gets in the way of it. So where's the power to create it as we finish? Here's the power to create it. It's in verse 5. I will give you an everlasting name that will not be cut off. I will give you an everlasting name that will not be cut off. As we move to the table shortly and celebrate the Lord's death and resurrection, I just want to meditate on that one sentence. I will give you an everlasting name that will not be cut off. The background to this is in 2 Samuel 18, verse 18. In 2 Samuel 18, verse 18, you're getting to the end of the life of Absalom. Absalom is a tragic character in the Bible. Beautiful long hair, and it's with that hair he dies. But in 2 Samuel 18, 18, Absalom is scared witless that everybody will forget him. He's just going to live a nothing life with no consequence He's going to be like a sand on the seashore. The the sea of time will come in and his name will be forgotten. And so in a really sad uh, event in the history of the Bible, 2 Samuel 18, verse 18, uh, Absalom gets a great big stone and puts up a monument to himself to say, I've got no permanence, I've got no status, I've got no one to uh, inherit my life, I've got no children, everybody's going to forget me, no one's going to remember my name like they say in Cheers. So what I need to do is to, is to is make a massive monument to myself. It's called Absalom's Monument. It wasn't a very creative title in those days. But it's a tragic story because he's saying, I have no son to carry on my name. No one will remember me. It's desperation. It's a tragic story. And whether it's in the life of Absalom or in our lives, we fear the same thing. We fear the loss of status. We fear a loss of significance. We don't want to be, appear insignificant. And so Instagram is on the rise because we can project an image where everybody can see that it's not always true. That's the way things want to be or we want them to be. And here in this passage that centers on the community that God built, there is a promise that you no longer need to fear being a nobody. You can be a somebody by God's grace. There's a tragedy about relationships. That every relationship you have on earth will always become past tense at some point. If you're an animal lover, um, you'll have an animal and then they will die at some point. And there's great sadness for that. 
if you are a part of a family network, loved ones die. Loved ones get tragically ill and they die and, and then you begin to speak in a different way about them. I used to have an auntie called. My wife was. My husband was so kind to me. My wife was so generous to me. You speak in that way. Relationships always go to past tense because of the passing of time and the reality of death. And yet here is a promise that means that no one needs to be past tense in the same way anymore. Look at Isaiah 43. If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn back to Isaiah 43, verse 1. If you choose to bind yourself to God's promise and his character, this is the future. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. I will give them an everlasting name. The moment you become a Christian, upon you is given, imputed by God's kindness and grace, an everlasting name. God chooses you. You're bound to the future because of his grace. You no longer will, and never will God say, this was my friend, because you're with him forever. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent, is the big Bible word. And because he is eternal, when he puts his love on you, it's never removed, it's never taken away, it's never even stretched or strained. It will never go into the past tense. That passage says, when God puts his love on you, you have an everlasting name. You eternally matter to God. You're eternally significant to God. You count forever. You say, well, that sounds too good to be true. How could I know something like that? Look at the second half of sentence five in our passage from Isaiah 56. I will give them an everlasting name. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. That phrase, cut off, is a covenant word. It's a covenant term. It's very, very significant in the Bible. To be cut off from God is because of our sin. We, God banishes us. He removes us from his purity and holiness. It's the curse of sin to be cut off. As we thought about last week in Isaiah 53, this phrase is used of Jesus. Sin is self-centeredness. Sin is selfie-centeredness. Sin is turning our back away from God, taking uh, all the resources that God has given us using them for our own means. And yet we're told that the horrible reality of being cut off from everybody else, from never knowing the warmth of a kiss, never knowing the warmth of a cuddle, never knowing the reality of a family that loves us, we will never have to experience that in eternity if God rescues us. And how is that possible? Because of the cross. We will never be cut off from God because God was cut off for us. Isaiah 53, verse 8, For he, Jesus, the suffering servant, was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of his people, he was stricken. Jesus just wasn't just cut into by a thorn or a spear. He was cut off from his father. He wasn't just cut by a spear or a thorn or a nail in his hand. He was cut off from his father and from, from eternity, the love that he had known. Hard to get a handle on, but this is what I mean. Imagine if uh, one of you might feel like saying this sometimes after a church service, you, someone comes up to me, one of you lot come up to me, and you say, I hate you. 
I never want to see you again. You're so unkind, you're so unloving. I hate you, I never want to see you again. I would go home and Joe would say, hey, what's the matter with you? And um, I would say, well, someone just said this to me and it's really hurt. And, and over time, weeks, months, I'd get over that. Um, I'd get over that. I'd move on. But imagine if Joe said that to me in the car on the way home. My wife said that to me. I hate you. I don't love you. I never want to see you again. Now, that's very different for a husband to hear. That's something I could quite possibly and quite understandably never get over. Now, that is far closer to the reality that Jesus experienced on the cross. His father turned his face away from him, the source of love and joy and light for all eternity. And God the Father turned away his face from God the Son. And God the Son was cut off from the source of love and light that he knew for all eternity. It's the greatest agony we will never fully know. But Jesus did that for us. He was cut off. When you see that reality, when you don't just understand it in part, we never understand it in full, but when we see that and understand that and grasp that, when you build your identity on that as a Christian, you can cut me off as many times as you like because my identity will hurt. You can say you hate me and that I'm not loving and kind. But if my identity is in Jesus, there is eternal, everlasting security that no earthly person can ever take away from me. Now that reality, that truth is what you need to live in community here in Epsomanual in Emmanuel. Because we will let you down. We will hurt you. We will misunderstand you. But by God's grace, step by step, year by year, we're becoming more of the show home of God's glory by his grace that he longs to see in Epsomon Yule. Would you bind yourself to us only after you've bound yourself to him? Let's pray.